Thank you, Deacon Arrow. For a moment, I was panicking. Romans 8. That's all right. All, all sorted out. Thank you for being uh, at the service today. Uh, it's, it's pouring cats and dogs out there, but uh, thank you for being on time. Well, if you'd like to follow the sermon with the outline, you can find the outline uh, in the bulletin. Right? In uh, the e-bulletin, you can download it from arpc.sg. It's good to keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 53 because most of the reference will be taken from there. Now, when I, was, uh, when I was in primary school, I had a good friend who sat beside me in class. And just like any young boys, we talk a lot in class, especially when the teacher is not teaching up front or maybe even when they were teaching up front. So sorry, teachers. Uh, anyway... This friend of mine, he told me that he liked this girl who sat about two or three rows in front of us. And then he went on and on about how much he's in love with her and what things he would do for her. Now, he even boasted that he would die for her. And then he did something really silly. Now, to substantiate his point that he's willing to die for her, he took out his penknife. And then he pretended to cut his finger. And he kept giving me the bow look. And then say repeatedly, I will die for you while air cutting his finger. And then he actually cut his finger. See, blood came gushing out, and we both were stunned for a little while. And before he shouted, Blood, blood. And then the teacher in the class quickly brought him to the school office to get first aid. And if I'm not wrong, he got stitches after that. So much for his bold claim of love. Now, for the young ones among us, please don't try this at home or anywhere else, right? Because you will only be remembered as a silly friend even after 40 years. <laughs> now, see, that's the, about the only thing I remembered about this friend. And the, mo and the moment is still very vivid in my mind. See, that was how far... He will and can go for her. Now, it was obviously very limited, right? But see, how far will God go for his people? How far will he go to save us? And that's what we will look at today. See, if you've been following us in our series, our Two Ways to Live series, we are now in box four or part four of the series. Now, before we get to know how far God will go to save us, we need to firstly establish that we need to be saved. So why do we need a saviour? So this will be sort of a, a recap or summary of where we have gone so far in the series. You see, in box one, we, we learn from Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, that God is that one creator and ruler over all things, including human beings. See, he's, he's, uh, he's thoroughly good, loving, and holy. And not only does he generously create and sustain this world, he also rules it with justice. We, as his creation, are created not only to rule this world under him, but also to obey to give thanks and to worship Him. For God is worthy 
to receive glory, honour and power because He is the generous and loving Creator of the entire universe. However, in box 2, we have sinned against God. In the words of Isaiah, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. See, we have gone our own way and decided on what is good and bad apart from our just and righteous God. See, all humanity was there, has therefore rebelled against this God, neither worshipping Him nor giving thanks to Him as our loving Creator and generous God. You see, we suppress, suppress whatever knowledge we have of God and turn to worship and pursue the things of this world. Indeed, Romans 3 tells us that no one does good and no one seeks God. Now, if you are here with us last week in Bishan, we learned that this rebellion against God and living our own way is a conscious decision that we make. Quoting Tim Keller, Pastor Edmund highlighted that it is us, we ourselves, who lock ourselves from the inside out to God's righteous judgment. But God is holy and just. He cannot let that rebellion and sin go on forever. So we see, in, see part of His judgment today in the decay and the death in our world. Yet a future and a final judgment awaits all living and the dead. God will give us what we ask for, which is separation from Him. He will cut us off from Himself permanently. And since God is the source of life and all good things, being cut off from Him means a destruction that never ends. Now my friends, if world history ends in this way, in box three, it will indeed be tragic, wouldn't it? It will be bad news indeed forever. Now this is the greatest problem of all humanity. We have seen and we have faced God's judgment, but at the same time, it is also God's problem. You see, our loving Creator God wants to be in the right relationship with us. But our sin and our rebellion is a barrier to this relationship. So you'll be unjust of God to just ignore it. So the question for us is how can God save and reconcile us to Himself without compromising His holiness and justice? How can God save and reconcile us to Himself without compromising his holiness and justice. How far will God go to save us? Now this problem of our sin and rebellion is not a new problem. It was a problem since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. It continued in the lives of the Israelites despite them having experienced the, the grace of God at different times in their history. See, the cycle of sin, judgment, grace keeps repeating itself again and again in the history of Israel. However, Israel's repeated unrepentance and accumulated sin against God and others came to a height when God pronounced 
his judgment on them through the exile. Their country is ravished, their homes are destroyed, and almost all the people were sent into exile. But from Isaiah 40 onwards, God announced through the prophet Isaiah a promised comfort and salvation for his people. Now, it was not just a promise to bring them back to the promised land. That's too small a promise. It's also a promise of the for, for the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness and the reconciliation with God. But how would that be possible? How can God save and reconcile us to himself without compromising his holiness and justice? Well, the answer in Isaiah is that it will be accomplished through the servant of the Lord. Now, this servant of the Lord will be the saviour of God's people. And we see that in the passage we read just now, Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is known as the fourth servant song in Isaiah. There are three more before that. But that's where we're going to spend our time on. You know, this year, Les Carnival is our fourth edition. And, you know, in every year we had it, we managed to have the president with us by the favour of God and the hard work of the committee. And we are often very amazed by the draw of the president. See, members, many members of the public will want to see the president in person and the opportunity to shake his or her hand, take pictures with him or her. And I still remember inviting my parents uh, for the very first edition. And my mom was so excited that she dressed up to her nice, you know, and even made my nephews do likewise. That was until she realized how hot and crowded Les Carnival will be. And she didn't even manage to go near the president. Now, even this year, when our youths and, uh, and the BBGB youths hosted the beneficiaries and the Comcare residents, many of them told us, tell us where the president is. We just want to go and see the president. See, everyone wants to meet the president. But how about this servant of the Lord? the saviour of the world. See, Isaiah 53, verse 2 to 3 tells us that there is nothing spectacular about this servant of the Lord who will be our saviour. He will come in a humble and unassuming way. He will neither attract nor draw attention by his outward appearance. Nobody, nobody will shout room or attention when he enters the room. And verse 3 tells us that he will eventually be despised and rejected by others. Not only will this servant not attract people, he will also be shunned, for he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now verse 5 gave, gave further description of what will happen to this servant. See, he will be pierced, he will be crushed, and that's to depict the kind of violent treatment that he would receive from others. And these verbs are often associated with death. And some would say that they connote the most excruciating death. His death is later confirmed for us 
in verses 7 to 9, which you can read in your Bibles, as he was led to the slaughter, cut off from the living, and made his grave with the wicked. See, if there's any adjective to describe this servant of the Lord, it will be suffering. As he will come to be known, this suffering servant will be the saviour of the world. But we ask ourselves, why, why must this servant of the Lord, this saviour of the world, suffer? Why must all this unimaginable violence and pain come upon this all-important saviour of the world? But the second part of verse 4 tells us that many would have perceived his suffering as God's punishment on him. It was because of his own sin, they would think. He was deemed to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Now, that would be a common view of most Jews then. It was the view of Job's friends and the Jews of Jesus' time. See, one example was the man born blind whom Jesus met. They assumed that it was the result of his or, her parent, or his parents' sin. It's often the view even of our present culture today. See, all suffering and disaster is a punishment for sin, we think. And perhaps for some, even if it's not punishment, it's just understood as being swayed, unlucky. But no, the suffering of this servant was neither due to his own sin nor bad luck. See, verse 9 tells us that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He has done nothing to deserve these sufferings. See, the unjust violence and death that he had to endure was not God's punishment on him. But nonetheless, verse 10 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. So why did God purpose the servant of the Lord to suffer. Now that's because the suffering he suffered was for God's people. He may be described in verse 3 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But when you read the next verse, the sorrows and the griefs he bore were his people's, not his. And furthermore, verse 5 made it clear that he was pierced and crushed for the transgressions and the iniquities of his people. Now, those are two very big words, right? What do they mean? Now, transgression just means rebellion, and iniquities mean misdeed or guilt. And these transgressions and iniquities were not the servants again. They belong to the people. As verse 6 says, we all like sheep, we have gone astray and turned to our own way. However, the Lord has laid on the servant the misdeeds and the guilt of us all on him. Now, this verse tells us what role the servant play. He's going to take the punishment that was meant for the transgressors and the sinners. In other words, he is the substitute for the people. And that, is, that explains why it is God's will 
for him to suffer. See, the substitutionary view, uh, role of the, of the servant is reinforced by the metaphor in verse 7. The metaphor of the sheep is now used to describe the servant and not the people. However, it is used with a different significance. You know, sometimes when we think about dogs, right? Dogs can sometimes be portrayed as man's best friend, very cuddly, you know, on one hand. But on the other hand, we also see dogs and signs outside houses, beware. You know, dogs can bite. It's to warn intruders away. Same animal, but different significance. So in verse 7, it's no longer describing the people, but it's describing the servant. See, it's described the servant in terms of the mild and defenseless nature of the sheep. Just like the sheep, the servants accepted the unjust and the violent oppression and death without protest. You know, very recently, some of my uh, son's classmates misbehave and they, they cause a ruckus in class. Now, when one of his friends were accused wrongly of being one of those troublemakers, he fought hard to prove his innocence. Well, as for my son, well, he was not accused of wrongdoing, but in his mind, he has already lined up all the arguments and methods to prove his innocence. He will evoke all powers to defend himself, including calling upon his father. You see, nobody in normal circumstances will quietly accept false accusation against them. They will protest and they will deny vehemently. However, the servants will not protest despite being innocent. Why? For there is a greater purpose. You see, this use of the metaphor of the sheep and lamb being led to slaughter is not arbitrary. It's not random. It will no doubt bring to mind the Passover lamb in Exodus. It was slaughtered as a substitute for the firstborn son in the family. It will also be associated with the sacrifices required by the Mosaic law. See, in Leviticus 7 and 16, there's a symbolic transfer of sin from the people onto the animal before it was slaughtered or led into the wilderness. So this idea of being a sacrifice and offering is also substantiated by uh, verses 10 and 12. See, the servant's life was meant to be given up as an offering for guilt. And he is said to have bore the sins of many. So in other words, just like the sacrificial lamb, the servant of the Lord is the substitute to take the punishment on behalf of the sinful people. And that punishment is essentially death. For death is the wages of sin. And what comes out? What's the result of the servant's sacrifice? Why is the result of his substitutionary suffering and death? Well, firstly, in verse 5, it tells us that this suffering brought peace. Peace, which is shalom in Hebrew. This peace is firstly peace with God, not just a peace in the heart, peace with God, which is a reconciled relationship. But it will also mean wholeness in everything. 
all the brokenness that comes with sin will be restored to good order. And secondly, still in verse 5, God's people will be healed by the wounds of the servant. See, this is the healing of the sickness associated with sin. So once again, it is through the servant that God's people can be whole again and will not suffer the result of sin. But thirdly, in verse 11, the servant who is the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous. See, they were not, it's not about them being sinless, but they will be counted as righteous before God. And that is only possible because the servant has bore their iniquities through his suffering. He paid the price that was due them. Hence, his suffering was not meaningless. It was neither punishment for his own sin, nor just being swayed, right? This servant didn't resist when getting led to the slaughter because his suffering and his death served a greater purpose. It was God's plan that through the suffering of this servant, that salvation will come to his people. And that's how far God will go to save his people. He will send the servant of the Lord as a substitute to suffer and to bear the punishment and guilt on their behalf. In that way, God can save and reconcile us to himself without compromising his holiness and his justice. And in the end, if you read Isaiah 53, this servant will be vindicated, but we will leave that for the next week. But we ask ourselves, right, wow, like all the hints are given, but who is this servant of the Lord who will save through his suffering? Actually, the answer is all given through the prayer and the songs that we sang. Right? But the question is, will this person really be able to do this job? Is he a sufficient substitute to take the punishment and bring salvation to his people? As we know, this servant of the Lord in Isaiah is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Right? All the description and prophecy about the person and the actions of the servant of the Lord are ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. See, right from the beginning in, in John chapter 1, verse 29, tells us that when John the Baptist saw Jesus from afar coming towards him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you see the events of Jesus' life, his suffering and his death, as recorded for us in all four Gospels, corresponded to the servant. Jesus was rejected and despised. He did nothing wrong, but he was arrested by the authorities. He was beaten, he was whipped, and crucified. But he did not protest. Pontius Pilate could not find him guilty in any way despite all the weak witnesses and accusations. Yet Pilate succumbed to pressure and gave the order to crucify the innocent Jesus. And his eventual death happened during the Passover. This too is the fulfillment of Jesus being the ultimate Passover lamb 
to save through his substitutionary death. See, after Jesus' resurrection, the apostle Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch as recorded for us in Acts 8. And at the point of time, the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53. And Philip had no problems identifying, explaining to this eunuch that Jesus is this servant that he read in Isaiah 53. And the later New Testament writings also point to Jesus being the servant of the Lord. See, our opening passage in 1 Peter 2 was almost a word-for-word quote of Isaiah 53. You see that on the slide? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But we ask ourselves the question, why must the servant of the Lord be Jesus? Yes, indeed, he fulfilled all the prophecies. Can it be someone else? Can it be another person? Well, the answer is no. But why is that so? And that is because nothing and nobody apart from Jesus can fulfill that role. Only Jesus is a sufficient saviour for us. And that has to do with Jesus' identity and his life. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Or perhaps just God-man in short. See, John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this this Word then became flesh, and dwell among us as a, as a fellow human being. See, as a human being, Jesus can fully represent humanity and is a sufficient substitute for us. As Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament sacrificial system does not save us from our sins. See, animals are just not a good enough substitute for us. But Jesus, as a human, is. But not only is Jesus fully man, he is also without sin. Tempted in every way, his earthly life, but Jesus still did not sin. He was obedient even to death on the cross. Hence, he can take the punishment on our behalf. You know, someone who is uh, sentenced to death cannot take the place of another person who is sentenced to death. But Jesus is the only one without that death sentence, and I meant spiritually, because he is a man who did not sin. He is sufficient to take our place and save us without compromising God's justice. But Jesus, as a sufficient sacrifice and saviour, is not only because he is a sinless human being, it's also because Jesus is fully God. See, the Old Testament often stresses the point that only God can forgive sins because 
sins are firstly against him. So when Jesus, the God-man, takes the punishment for our sins, he is not an unevolved or, or innocent third party, so to speak. Because Jesus himself is also the offended God. So just like a creditor who bears the loss of himself when he writes off his debtor's debt, Jesus bears the loss with his death in order to forgive us. So here we have the answer to the question of how God can save us without compromising his holiness and justice. It is true, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus the God-man for us. By his death, he satisfied God's justice and granted us forgiveness of our sins. Now, as we think about what God has done for us in sending Jesus, we all, let us also remember that it is not merely a transaction. He died for me and that's it, right? Because you know, if we share the gospel in this way, the message can be really very logical and, and it's possible for us to think or share what Jesus had done in a very cold, a very functional way. We have sinned, we will be judged. Jesus took our punishment by dying for us so that our sins can be forgiven. That's very true. However, the sending of Jesus to suffer such violence and unjust death is motivated by God's love for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, my silly primary school friend, he may boast of dying for the girl he likes, but in reality, he wouldn't lay down his life for her. He freaked out at his bleeding finger. But God went so far as to give his one and only son to die for us when we do not deserve anything apart from his righteous wrath. See, the greatness of his gift and the unworthiness of us as recipients testifies to the depth of His love for us. So what might all these things mean for us? We can be very familiar with all these, isn't it? What can it mean for us now in terms of sharing and understanding the Gospel? Well, there are a few implications. Well, firstly, the good news is good news only when one is convinced of the bad news. See, unless we are convinced that we need a saviour, the death of Jesus will sound like a nice, heartwarming, but foolish thing someone did for us. We must prayerfully convince and be convinced of the gravity of our sins and our helplessness to deal with it and facing the fearful reality of judgment as a result, we truly need a saviour to save us. So how have you and I 
in viewing our anger, our pride, our lust, our discontentment and greed. Do we just see them as, well, these are little sins that it comes naturally to every person? Or are they part of a bigger spiritual problem of rebellion against God? You know, sometimes when I drive, sometimes it's the answer statement, I often complain about the slow, the indecisive and the bad drivers out there. But then when I get horned for doing the same, I'll scold them for being impatient. And then when my wife points out my ungraciousness, I will be very proud to justify my complaints. Yeah, they deserve it. I never thought I needed a saviour in those times. Scripture tells us that the deeper problem is our rebellion against God. Left unaddressed and unrepented, it's a matter of time before the anger, the pride and the discontentment that manifested in small ways in a car will balloon in bigger ways at home, at work and in our relationships. Don't kid ourselves. We all need a saviour outside of our sinful self. Which leads us to the second implication. We all need a saviour and the only saviour is Jesus Christ. He's the only sufficient person to save us as God and as a sinless human being. The only way to be saved from our rebellion against God and our sin against each other is Jesus and Jesus alone. See, no amount of self-help, meditation or, or good works can save us. These are never the means of our salvation. If that was the case, or if there's another way to be saved, it would be a travesty that Jesus was sent to the cross. If there's another way, Jesus wouldn't have to endure the unjust suffering and the violent death. This is the true gospel, even for us, many of us Christians sitting here. See, there may be some of us here who may be tempted to think that after believing in Jesus, we maintain our salvation by our works, our religious activities, our church attendance, and our good behavior. But friends, these are the results and products of our salvation and not the means of our salvation. Jesus remains as the only Savior. So therefore, even when we share the gospel with others, you will never be from a position of pride that I got it all sorted out and you have not. See, Jesus is our Savior from the beginning and remains as our Savior till the end. But lastly, let us ever be so thankful for the love of God in Christ Jesus. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, God has been pursuing His people in love while maintaining His justice. His love brought Him so far to send the servant of the Lord, who is ultimately His Son, to pay the debt we cannot pay and to bear the punishment that we cannot bear. 
You know, this year, we celebrate the 100th year, the 100th year of the late Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, right? Now, I watched this CNA documentary called I Remember Lee Kuan Yew. I think there were two out there, but this is one of them. Uh, and it was made for this occasion. It was a collection of, of testimonies of those who have interacted with the late Mr. Lee. And one of those was his bodyguard. He's called Mr. Karupya Kandashami. He made this statement at the end. He said, I would have stood between Mr. Lee and the bullet and would have taken that bullet for him. See, if I were gone, Singapore would not have lost anything. If he would have gone, many of us here would not have the happy life we have today. Such a moving commitment and loyalty from a bodyguard who knew the value of the one he is protecting. It was so moving that my wife cried on hearing it not once but twice. If I make her cry, I'll just say it again, right? <laughs> However, for Jesus, he took the wrath of God against sin upon himself, but not for a worthy man but for unworthy sinners and rebels. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, we would have nothing but a just punishment for our sins. But Jesus has gone to the cross so that we may have forgiveness of sins and life eternal today. He now calls us to turn away from our own way, to trust and believe in Him. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you, recognizing that we have sinned against you and others. We need your salvation grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us never to belittle our sins so that we think that we do not need saving or that we can overcome it by our own good works or our Christian activities. We thank you for the suffering and the death of Jesus that bore the punishment for our sins. May we repent and to turn to trust in Jesus, our one and only Saviour. Amen.